Um, we are in Luke 17. We've made it through 16, and now we are in 17. Um, the title is Pay Attention to Yourselves, and that comes right out of uh, verse 3. So here we go. And he said to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. So here we have uh, just more teaching from Jesus to his disciples, and we are his disciples. And uh, he begins with the reality that temptations are inevitable. They're sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. And verse 1 is almost identical to what Jesus says at the Last Supper about Judas, who's about to betray him. He says, for the Son of Man must go as it has been determined. So Christ's betrayal is not just foreknown, but it's determined. It's, it's, it's part of the eternal plan. And you might think, oh, okay, well, if it's part of, part of the plan, then he's not accountable. You know, he's just a puppet. But look at the second part of the verse. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And here we have, again, that classic tension between the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. And what, what Jesus does in verse 1 is he acknowledges temptations to sin are sure to come, but, okay, but, woe, but, woe to the one through whom they come. So now the focus is on our responsibility and our sin, okay? So the theme of this little four-verse paragraph is in verse 3, pay attention to yourselves, okay? Because why? Woe to the one through whom these temptations come. So uh, pay attention to yourselves, and I'm, I'm going to break it down this way. Pay attention to your own example, right? In, that's in verse 2. Verse 3, pay attention to one another. One another's bad grammar, right? Three, pay attention to your bitterness. And these all kind of intertwine together. So let's, let's take a look at this, this first uh, thing we're to pay attention to, our own example. He says, it would be better for him, the, the one through whom temptations come, if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea, then that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. 
Now, um, this verse itself raises a whole bunch of questions. Uh, w- one question would be, who, who are the little ones that he's talking about? Um, why is this drastic, violent, horrible death? You have this um, several hundred pound stone tied to your neck and thrown, you're thrown into the sea and you die by drowning. He says that would be better than that you cause one of these little ones to sin. Why is that better than causing a little one to sin? And then third, how do we cause others to sin? So that's uh, in the big outline under point one, three questions. So let me, let me attack each one of them. Who are the little ones? Now, um, we immediately think, well, that's got to be referring to children. Um, and, and I do want to zero in on our influence upon our children, but, but I, I want to let you know that I do believe that when we compare Luke 17 to, to Matthew chapter 18, they're parallel passages, and Jesus expands on this idea of who the little ones are in Matthew chapter 18, and it's, it's broader than just children. Let me, let me show you that. Um, he, he takes a little child. So Jesus, uh, Jesus likes to use sermon illustrations. So his sermon illustration is, hey, little one, come here. And he takes probably a little toddler or a, a young child and has the child stand in the middle of the assembled crowd. And here's what he says. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now, what does that mean? That means to to enter the kingdom of heaven, you need a humble heart, just like a little child, especially a little toddler, is totally dependent upon his parents. You know, his his main word is up, up, right? Help, food, you know, he's dependent. That's how you need to become in a humble trust in the Lord, proud, arrogant, self-sufficient people will never enter. So the child is the sermon illustration of what we need to become like. The word like there is key. Then he says, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. So if you receive a, a new believer who has just come to faith and humbled themselves, you've received Christ. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, what are the little ones? Well, they could be the little children who believe, but the, who the children represent are new believers. If you cause them to, to sin, and, and that sin maybe even leads them away from the Lord, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it's necessary that temptations to come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. So if we do a, let's do a lateral move from Luke's gospel over to Matthew's gospel, same sentence, but surrounded by a larger context, the little ones, while it includes children, uh, it's talking about our own uh, uh, leading young believers, new believers to sin. Now, the, the point is this. We are 
the word the word woe is a a word of doom. It's a word of cursing, really. Woe, cursed are those who influence little ones in Christ to sin. So here's the main thing I want us to see. We are accountable for our own sin and how our own sin um, degrades the holiness of God. We must give account for that one day. But we're also accountable for how our example and our influence draws others to sin. So we're doubly accountable. Now, praise God, we're covered by the grace of Christ. Praise God that those who are in Christ, um, we, we are forgiven, okay? But let's not lose sight of the fact that these are serious words. Now, um, the, the bigger question uh, that, that many of us have is, is this, why the drastic uh, illustration of the, the millstone tied around the neck? Why is it m- more, uh, why is that a better fate than causing someone else to sin? Now, I think if we keep looking at the context in Matthew 18, we see that the answer is this. Because that kind of lifestyle of our example leading others to sin leads to hell. You go, oh, here he goes with the hell thing again, right? Um, well, um, let, me, uh, let me show you that I'm not just reading that into it. If, you know, verse 7, for it's necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame them with two hands or two feet be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes be thrown into the hell of fire. Why is it better to be thrown into the sea and, and that prevents you from leading little ones to sin because a lifestyle of leading little ones to sin shows you're not saved and damnation is the result. Uh, that's the flow of what the passage is saying. Now, I know this raises a question. How can hell be a motivator for disciples? I mean, aren't aren't we free of the fear of hell because we've trusted in Jesus? Isn't that the good news of the gospel? Isn't that the glory of having the security of salvation? Yes. So let um, let me show you how the fear of hell ties in to a disciple's sin life, okay? And uh, to do this, I am going to use the help of a guy, you may have never heard of him, his name is uh, John Piper, and he's got a book called 
future grace. In fact, once Teresa asked me, what's my favorite John Piper book? And um, I, sh I should have said, don't waste your life. But this is probably his most practical book. And um, oh, by the way, the reason she asked is she went up to the guy and got uh, got his signature for Brian, John Piper. There it is. Okay, you're dismissed. No, um, he he comments on this passage about chopping off your hand and plucking out your eye. Now he's talking about it in the context of the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus is talking about lust. And he says, if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. If your right hand causes you to sin, throw it away. Here's how he ties it together. He says, a few years ago, I spoke to a high school student body about how to fight lust. One of my points was called, ponder the eternal danger of lust. I quoted the words of Jesus that it's better to go to heaven with one eye than to hell with two. And I said to the students, that their eternal destiny was at stake in what they did with their eyes and with the thoughts of their imagination. I tried to counteract the prevalent notion that personal sexual morality, including the life of the mind, is of minor moral significance. Idealistic students and adults often think that what they do with their bodies and their minds on the personal level is no big deal. If it's a sin at all, it's sin with a little s. Shouldn't we just get on with the bigger issues like international peace and global environmental strategies and racial reconciliation and social justice and health care initiatives and the elimination of violence? Sleeping around is simply no big deal if you are in the picket line for justice. So um, he goes on to say this. After my message in the high school auditorium, one of the students came up to me and asked, are you saying then that a person can lose his salvation? In other words, if Jesus used the threat of hell to warn about the seriousness of lust, doesn't that mean that a Christian can perish? And, and by the way, if you know John Piper, you know he does not believe that a Christian can lose their salvation, right? So how, how does this all tie together? He says, this is exactly the same response I got a few years ago when I confronted a man about the adultery he was living in. I tried to understand his situation, and I pled with him to return to his wife. Then I said, you know, Jesus said that if you don't fight this sin with the kind of seriousness that is willing to gouge out your eye, you will go to hell and suffer there forever. As a professing Christian, he looked at me in utter disbelief, as though he had never heard anything like this in his life. He said, you mean you think a person can lose his salvation? And so I've learned again and again from firsthand experience that there are professing Christians who have a view of salvation that disconnects it from real life and that nullifies the threats of the Bible and puts the sinning person who claims to be a Christian beyond the reach of biblical warnings. So uh, again, what, what is he saying? What is Jesus saying? Well, You've heard, heard this many times. Salvation is by faith alone, not by works, 
not by chopping off your hand, not by plucking out your eye. But salvation is more than an intellectual thing where you go, okay, I got the facts of the gospel. Click. I, I agree with them. Saving faith actually unites you to Christ. And you cannot be united to Christ and live an ongoing, unholy life. It's just impossible. That's the whole point of Romans 6. You, you, it's just not possible, right? So if your lifestyle is such that there's no change, there's no growth in holiness, and then add to that, your life influences the lives of others. If they say, well, they claim to be a Christian, therefore I guess I can live this way. Um, woe to us, right? Um, so, you know, last couple of weeks we talked about hell and what happens, and we talk about it because it's in the text. Just go back and read the end of 16. Um, what happens when we extinguish hell? Well, I think we lose a motive for missions. We lose an urgency in evangelism. But here, we even lose a motivator to fight sin with radicalness, right? Because, oh, well, hell doesn't exist or we're all going to heaven. This threat is just a, um, a lame threat. It's not a real threat. Okay, so I, I think we need to take this warning seriously. Now, um, one last quick thing under point one is this. So how do we cause others to sin? And let me narrow in specifically on our own children in our own homes. And, and we can do it with overt sin and subtle sin. I mean, overt sin would be we profess that we know Christ and we go to church. But there's just overt sin that's clearly not in line with how Christ would have us live. And the little ones growing up in our house say, oh, it's all a sham. Okay. I, I heard a story of a, um, a, a man who was a churchgoer, but every night he would walk down the block to the local bar and uh, just get drunk every night and stagger back home. And one night was in the middle of winter. He uh, went out the door, started walking down the block, and he heard behind him, uh, it was a winter night, so there was snow on the ground. He heard crunch, crunch, and he turned, and there was his little toddler um, jumping from one of his footsteps to another footstep to another footstep. And he turned and he said, son, what are you doing? And his son said, I'm following in your footsteps. And it was like the Lord spoke to him and he said, oh my, what am I doing? And his life radically changed at that point, right? And by the way, there are secret sins that we think we can get away with. And when Ever the Lord wants to expose those, those get exposed to the family, to the children. Um, so uh, 
you, you, you can't say, all right, I don't live in overt sin. I live in covert sin, but nobody will find out. Are you sure? Right. But then, then there's, um, just the more subtle sins, at least the ones that we think are not that big a deal that, that children observe and they go, Oh, this isn't real. This Christianity thing isn't real. One of them is just simply church gossip, uh, talking in front of our kids about others with a disdainful attitude. But on Sunday, they sing and, and, and praise God, but they, they see how others are talked about, and they learn that it's all a sham, right? There's, a, there's another uh, type of sin, just simply spiritual apathy. And by the way, you say that's a sin? Yeah. Um, here's the command. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. So if our kids just see us, go to church, do the duties, but there's no real passion for Christ, you know what they learn? It's okay to do that. Let's not get too excited about Jesus. So um, point one is watch yourselves. Our lives, our examples can draw others to sin, and they set the example for our children. Fight that with the tenacity of chopping off your hand, plucking out your eye. Why? Because an unchanged life, a nominal life, shows you may not be on the path and Hellfire is a warning. Jesus, Jesus says this. All right, so first point, pay attention to yourself and your example. Second point, pay attention to others. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. Now, let me, let me preface this uh, with, with a huge caution. Because some people read this and they go, I love this verse. Oh, uh, I get to rebuke people. And uh, some Christians believe what this means is create a police state at your church and in your family where your full-time uh, ministry is pointing out other people's sins. And, and I just simply want to say, um, if that's what you get out of this verse, that's a pathological disorder, right, that the Pharisees enjoyed. Um, Jesus demolished them by pointing out, out how they loved to point out other people's sins, superficial external sins, but their insides, their souls, and their hearts were like rotting uh, graves, all right, so be careful that you don't take this uh, to, to turn uh, your home and your church into a police state. It reminds me, I think I've mentioned this before. Um, so I'm, we're back in Batavia where I grew up, and my kids went to J.B. Nelson uh, right down the, the block from us. That's where I went to school. And I remember going uh, to J.B. Nelson. They um, had patrol boys and what that meant was um, they had a handful of sixth grade boys. Back then it was K through sixth. 
and these patrol boys were deputized by the uh, uh, the principal to keep order on the playground. And they were given an orange belt that they put around their waist and a, a shoulder strap. And um, they were they were there to help keep order. Well, um, I don't know whoever came up with the idea of giving sixth grade boys Barney Fife like authority. Um, but it was terrifying when a patrol boy was coming your way. I was sent up to the office one time. Um, they, they would say, you're going up to Woods. It was Mr. Wood was the uh, uh, the principal. And they would go around with their little, we're, we're writing you up and you're going up to Woods. What did I do? You did the monkey bars wrong or I, you know, I, what, whatever. So um, be careful that you don't turn into a spiritual patrol boy. Okay. So, so having, having uh, warned us about not being motivated by uh, pride or arrogance or vengeance, what's Jesus talking about here? Love, right? We're to love one another enough that when we see others showing Patterns of sin, especially sin that is just so out of line with the way a disciple should act, we are to lovingly, gently, humbly rebuke them. Now, um, sometimes what the pastor needs to do is say, um, hey, that word in biblical use is different than how it sounds 2,000 years later. And this word, Rebuke, I think, in our connotation, um, has concepts of harshness to it. Rebuke means you get angry and you point a finger and you have a kind of a superior attitude. But look how Paul uses it when he tells Timothy uh, in 2 Timothy 4 2, he says, Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort. How? with complete patience and teaching. If I am truly concerned about the eternity of another professing Christian, um, I need to lovingly, with complete patience, open my mouth, right? Now, um, what happens then? If they go, oh, I am so sorry. Please forgive me. Well, now Jesus says you need to forgive him. And he knows that we have a tendency to not forgive. We have a tendency to hold things against one another. We have a tendency to be bitter. All right. So he says, if your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day, and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Okay? Um, Now, that is asking a lot. Okay? And I do believe this teaching raises some interesting questions that are not real easily answered, such as, is forgiveness the same thing as extending 
trust. Our forgiveness and trust always the same thing. And um, I, I, I think one way to look at this is by giving an extreme example. Okay. Um, let's say you hire a kid from the church to babysit your kids. And you find out that they've been molesting your kids. And they're caught. And the kid says, I'm sorry. Must you now trust them? All right. So I, I, I think I, I think asking some difficult questions helps us sort out um, that there's the answers are not always easy answers. Another question is forgiveness the same as not involving the police. All right. Can you forgive somebody yet get the law enforcement involved? You know, I, I know a, a man, I traveled to Haiti with him several times, and his son was murdered um, by another man. And this guy um, that I traveled with actually went into the jail and asked to meet with the murderer and told him, I forgive you for killing my son. Now, does that mean he should have been released and that the murderer should have moved into his house with him? No, no. Um, so, so again, uh, is forgiveness exactly the same as trust? Is forgiveness the same as zero accountability? Accountability, right? So, so I, I realize that this this raises some very interesting, difficult questions, but. Sometimes I think we can so qualify a verse that we miss the main point, the shocking point of the verse, which is this. We help each other to grow as Christians in an environment of magnanimous forgiveness. So here's a question. Are you a magnanimous forgiver? Is the atmosphere in your home that of magnanimous grace? You know, not only does the person who is repenting need that grace, we need to be gracious because bitterness ultimately destroys us. And then it shows that we haven't been touched by grace Ourselves, you know, uh, if you follow uh, Luke 17 and compare it to Matthew 18, Jesus teaches the same thing here, and then he t he tells the parable of the unforgiving servant. I'll just briefly summarize it: A man is called into his boss, and he owes him a billion dollars, and the man says, "I can't pay. Please forgive me." And the magnanimous boss says, I forgive you a billion dollars. And the man goes out forgiven. And he runs into a fellow worker who owes him, well, several thousand dollars. And he says, hey, pay up. And the second man, the second servant says, I, I can't. Give me some time. And the first servant says, no. And he has him thrown into prison in the the, the owner of the business hears about this 
and he calls in this first servant who had been forgiven a billion dollars. And it says this, then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt, a billion dollars, because you pleaded with me and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you. And in anger, his master, who represents God here, delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. And by the way, you can never pay off a billion dollars of debt in debtor's prison. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Right? And you know what the apostles said when they heard this teaching? The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. This seems impossible. But when we remember how much we have been forgiven and how much grace we've been shown, and we see Jesus from the cross say, Father, forgive them. They know not what they're doing. And when we see the first martyr, Stephen, as he's being stoned, say, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. We see that this kind of supernatural uh, grace and extending of forgiveness and letting go of, of bitterness is actually possible. So let me close. Um, I found a, a, a really incredible illustration, um, and it's, it's somewhat long, so hang in there. But I think um, it will, again, show you that, that this ability to let go of bitterness and to forgive is not just something that took place 2,000 years ago. It, it happens during this day and age. So let me read this. Shortly after the turn of the century, and we're not talking... 2000, but we're talking 1900, turn after the uh, turn of the century, Japan invaded, conquered, and occupied Korea. Of all their oppressors, Japan was the most ruthless. They overwhelmed the Koreans with brutality that would sicken the strongest of stomachs. Their crimes against women and children were inhumane. One group singled out for concentrated oppression were Christians. When the Japanese army overpowered Korea, one of the first things they did was board up the evangelical churches, eject most foreign missionaries, and refuse to allow churches to meet and jail Christian leaders. One pastor persistently entreated his local Japanese police officer for permission to meet for services. His nagging was finally accommodated, and the police chief offered to unlock his church for one meeting. Korean families throughout the wide area, a wide area, made their way to the church. They passed the staring eyes of the Japanese captors, but nothing was going to steal their joy. The Korean church has always had a reputation as a singing church. Song after song rang through the open windows. It was during a stanza of Nearer My God to Thee that the Japanese police chief waiting outside gave the orders. The people toward the back of the church could hear them when they barricaded the doors and no one realized that the church was being doused with kerosene until they smelled the smoke. The pastor knew this was the end and he led his congregation in a hymn whose words served as a fitting farewell to earth and a loving salutation to heaven. Alas, and did my savior bleed and did my sovereign die? Would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? Just before the roof collapsed, they sang the last verse, 
and their words brought them into eternal glory. Clearing the incinerated remains was the easy part. Erasing the hate would take decades. For some of the relatives of the victims, this carnage was too much. Evil had stooped to a new low, and there seemed to be no way to curb the bitter loathing of the Japanese. It wasn't until 1972 that any hope came. A group of Japanese pastors traveling through Korea read the details of the tragedy and the names of the spiritual brothers and sisters who had perished, um, and they were overwhelmed with shame. They proceeded to raise 10 million yen. That's about $25,000. And the money was transferred through proper channels to build a beautiful white ch uh, church on the site of the tragedy. When the dedication service for the new building was held, a delegation from Japan joined the relatives and special guests. The Korean bitterness had festered for decades. Christian brothers or not, these Japanese were descendants of a ruthless enemy. It was time to bring the service to a close. Someone in charge of the agenda thought it would be appropriate to conclude with the same two songs that were sung that day that the church was burned. The song leader began uh, the words to nearer my God to thee, but something remarkable happened as the voices mingled on the familiar melody. As the memories of the past mixed with the truth of the song, resistance melted. The song leader closed the service with the hymn, At the Cross, which is one of the songs that was, was originally sung. The normally stoic Japanese could not contain themselves. The tears that began to fill their eyes during the song suddenly gushed from deep inside. They turned to their Korean spiritual relatives and begged them to forgive. The guarded, callous hearts of the Koreans were not quick to surrender, but the love of the Japanese believers, unintimidated by decades of hatred, tore at the Koreans' emotions. One Korean turned toward a Japanese brother, then another, then the floodgates, holding back a wave of emotion let go. The Koreans met their new Japanese friends in the middle. They clung to each other and wept. Japanese tears of repentance and Korean tears of forgiveness intermingled to bathe the sight of an old nightmare. Boy, do we need that today. Let me pray. Lord, as we read this true story, we see that miracles are still real. The miracle of forgiving those who've caused great harm. There's murder involved, there's fire involved, yet there's great forgiveness. Lord, we pray that you would first do a work in each of our hearts. We pray that that would spill out throughout the nation and throughout the world. Lord, I pray that you would enable us to remove uh, bitterness, leave it at the foot of the cross, Fill us with grace. Remind us of the billion-dollar debt we have been forgiven. And may you receive all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.